DVOA News. From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are Katherine Gibson, VOA Congressional Correspondent, and Nancy Marshall-Genzer, Senior Reporter for Marketplace. Welcome, Nancy and Katherine. Hello. Thank you. Well, here are the issues. U.S. Congress sent legislation to President Joe Biden, a measure that raises the nation's debt limit with near party line votes to avoid an unprecedented default. The signing of the bill will be a final step in a process that had divided Democrats and Republicans for months. Democrats' hopes of passing President Biden's climate and social spending bill before Christmas were dashed, with divisions in the party continuing. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reported the U.S. inflation rate rose 6.8 percent over last year, the highest increase since 1982. The U.S. House of Representatives approved a resolution that calls on the Justice Department to formally charge Mark Meadows, former President Donald Trump's chief of staff, with criminal contempt of Congress for refusing to testify to the special committee investigating the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol building by Trump's supporters. The European Union is discussing with the United States and Britain whether to impose new economic sanctions on Russia. U.S. intelligence assesses that Russia could be planning a multi-front offensive on Ukraine as early as next year. Governments around the world are tightening restrictions to stop the spread of the Omicron variant, which has been reported in more than 60 countries, and data from South Africa indicate that Omicron may result in less sickening illness than other coronavirus variants. The U.S. state of California brought back statewide mask mandates for indoor public places. States are taking different approaches to fight COVID as hospitalizations increase across the U.S. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Catherine, President Biden will sign legislation to raise the debt limit through next year's midterm elections. This is about the existing obligations and really not about incurring new debt. Yes, that's right. So it's basically looking at the nation's credit limit. And what Democrats and Republicans were saying to each other in the lead up to this vote is kind of a bit of jockeying back and forth to see who would be responsible for raising that credit limit. Republicans very much wanted to pin this on Democrats and say, look, they are spending and spending and spending. This is always their theme about Democrats is that their spending is out of control. And Mitch McConnell felt that he was able to jockey in this complicated procedural way to lay that blame on Democrats. Of course, the argument is, is that any defaults, which has never happened before, would be catastrophic, particularly when the U.S. economy is still recovering from the impact of the pandemic. We have concerns about inflation here. Ultimately, this had to happen. They had to reach an agreement on it. So no one was terribly surprised when they did take that vote and pass it. And, you know, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has made it clear that this is money that Congress has already allocated and spent. This is like when you've charged something on your credit card and then you have to pay the bill. And what Yellen was saying to Congress was, look, you can't just say we're not going to pay our credit card bill. We've already made the charges. We have to pay up. Yes, those are really good points. And also Republicans hammered Democrats over the vote 
claiming the legislation will pave the way for reckless spending as their colleagues continue to try to advance President Biden's Build Back Better Act. Where does this stand right now? It doesn't look like Congress is going to get to this before Christmas, which is, of course, what Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had very much wanted. And that, of course, is because of West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin's opposition. That's right. You know, this is something that they've really struggled to pass in this last half of 2021. And there's some concerns among Democrats that they really lost momentum on that social spending bill. You know, the House passed it more than a month ago, and the Senate has really struggled to get Manchin on board, namely because he's really concerned about the price tag, which is $1.75 trillion. He's also concerned about a lot of the child tax credits and some of the climate change measures that are in this larger bill. So it looks like there's no way that they're going to be able to iron out these differences before the Christmas holidays. Even though this is what the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Senate does best, they leave everything until the last moment when all of the members want to get out of town, get their work done, and go back to their constituents and say, here, this is what we've worked out. But Manchin is just that strong holdout, and even in meetings with President Biden, has not been able to be convinced that this is something that they need to pass. And by all reports, this is frustrating Biden, who's always had a good relationship with Manchin. They just have not been able to see eye to eye on this. And one thing Manchin wanted was an income limit on who gets this enhanced child tax credit he wanted it reserved for low and, and middle income taxpayers. And what Democrats tried to do was say, look, you know, the last of these payments is going out December 15th. These enhanced payments were only in place for the, this year, 2022. And Democrats now are hoping that consumers will realize come January 15th, they don't get an extra child tax credit in their bank accounts. They'll start pressuring Congress to passed the Build Back Better Act, which would continue those child tax credit payments. And it's important for international listeners to remember that when Congress comes back from their Christmas and New Year's holiday break, they're already looking ahead to the 2022 midterms. All of the entire House has to run for re-election next year. Third of the Senate is running for re-election. They already have their minds on campaigning, on how all of this will play with voters. So that just adds another level of complication to actually passing this when they come back. That's right. And also adding another level of complication to all of this is inflation is at its worst in 40 years. Gasoline prices rose by 58.1% in November. Grocery store prices increased across the board for a third month in a row. And some economists, as well as President Biden, take the view that the pandemic and the pandemic-snarled supply chain are the primary culprits. And inflation will ease as the U.S. keeps combating the pandemic and implements supply chain fixes. Others, though, are concerned the problem is bigger than that and point to the government spending as a reason for increased inflation. So looking at this, Nancy, what is the Federal Reserve doing to counter inflation? Well, it looks like they'll be raising interest rates next year, possibly as soon as March. And the way that works, Kim, is if 
the Fed raises interest rates, that makes it more expensive for consumers and businesses to borrow. And if it's more expensive to borrow, consumers and businesses don't spend as much. Of course, spending is what revs up the economy. So if people are spending less, the assumption is the economy would cool off and inflation would fall. Well, while consumer confidence has dropped because of inflation, it appears that spending has been strong with retail sales rising in October. Are people buying during this holiday season and are the goods there for them to buy? Demand is still very strong. Some consumers are lucky enough to have a cushion of savings, but actually retail sales were, they were just up less than expected, much less than expected in November. Part of the theory behind that is maybe consumers got the message from retailers that they should shop early because there were shortages. And maybe that's why, you know, people just did a lot of their holiday shopping in October. But demand is still high. But, you know, another problem is consumers might just not be finding what they want on the shelves. So there is still high demand. People appear to have money to spend. But sales actually were not as strong as expected last month. Also, Catherine, President Biden says that they are working to fix some of the supply chain problems. So what is the administration doing and how will this inflation affect the midterm elections? That is one of the key questions headed into 2022. You know, none of these lawmakers up on Capitol Hill want to go back to their districts and hear from their constituents that the price of goods is going up, the cost of living is going up. Ultimately, elections often come down in this country to how well the economy is doing. And that is a very tough argument for Democrats to make if they're facing this record inflation. Of course, as you mentioned, the Biden White House is working hard with Congress to address these issues. They're using legislation, particularly in regards to China and addressing supply chain issues to address some of this. What the question it really comes down to is whether or not all of this trickles down to the ground level, to people living out in the United States, and whether they actually see the impact of some of this. And if they take a look when they go to the ballot box in November and say, look, Democrats spent and spent and spent, and we want to see a new kind of approach in Washington that will change some of this. So we're still a very, very far ways out from November. A lot can happen in the meantime, but that's already on Congress's radar. And another interesting thing on whether inflation is indeed temporary, the Fed is no longer using the word transitory to describe inflation. And Fed Chair Jerome Powell at the press conference that he had this week said he's not using the word transitory anymore and inflation has been a lot more stubborn and longer lasting than he expected. Good point. Thanks for that. Well, let's move on to another matter on Capitol Hill. House lawmakers voted to hold former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in contempt of Congress. So, Catherine, what is the goal of the special committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol building in doing this? Well, it's significant for two reasons. First, because it proves that the committee is really and truly serious about getting to the bottom of what happened on January 6th. The second reason is because, of course, even though we've seen other contempt of Congress charges, notably for former Trump campaign official Steve Bannon, this is really significant because we are talking about the White House chief of staff on January 6th a White House official who was close to former President Trump and had direct access to him on that day. 
as we saw in some of those text messages that were released by the committee, they really wanted to show that people were pleading with Meadows, including GOP lawmakers, Fox News hosts, People were saying, look, you need to go to Trump and you need to stop this. That really proves the seriousness of the situation. And they think that they are not even getting the full story from Meadows on that. They're trying to compel him to hand over even more documents and to testify. But of course, he's claiming executive privilege, saying that's why he can't testify and that's why he has that charge of contempt in Congress. The stonewalling and the long delay in Bannon's case it has raised questions about whether Trump's allies will be able to run out the clock on the select committee's investigation, particularly in light of the certainty that Republicans would quickly end the probe if they win control of the House after next year's midterm elections. Is this a valid concern? Well, remember, we have a lot of time until Republicans could possibly be sworn into office. They actually come into office in January of 2023. So we do have a full year that Democrats can investigate this. I think the next key question is whether or not these contempt of Congress charges that have been now referred to the Department of Justice are actually taken up by the DOJ. Remember, this puts the Department of Justice in a really tough spot where if they choose to take up those contempt charges, they are looking like they are part of the Biden administration prosecuting political opponents. Then they're really undermining the work of the committee, which a lot of people have said is one of the key jobs of Congress, is to really get to the bottom of this and see whether there was an orchestrated effort to undermine American democracy. You know, even Republican Representative Liz Cheney, who has been a very vocal critic of former President Trump, called this the moral challenge of our generation to find out what happened on January 6th. And really, that can only happen if they get all of the documents and all of the testimony to paint a full picture of what happened that day. So it would be very interesting to see what the Department of Justice does next with these charges. And uh, Congresswoman Cheney was pretty uh, intense and succinct in her comments at a recent committee meeting. She said Meadows had walked away from his commitment to appear and that he is improperly asserting executive and other privileges. So she's certainly not going to be giving up on this. No, absolutely not. And I think it is important to talk about the argument that Meadows is putting forward. He has provided thousands and thousands of documents and personal emails and text messages to the committee. It's when we're getting to that official correspondence that he's saying, no, that's protected under executive privilege because former President Trump himself has claimed that. Democrats argue that because President Biden has waived that claim of executive privilege, that supersedes all of this and Meadows has to be compelled to testify. Another wrinkle in the argument from Meadows is that he's also just recently published a book divulging some of the secrets about his time in the Trump White House. So people are pointing to that and saying, you know, look, if you can make money off of a book talking about these things, then you can cooperate with a congressional committee to get to the bottom of this. Yes, that's an interesting development there. Can we expect any more news coming from this investigation before the holidays, or are we looking now into January? Likely not, because the House is now out of session for this week. They could, of course, come back into session next week if the Senate 
unlikely, but if the Senate makes any movement on voting rights legislation or the social spending bill, but really what we're looking at is into next year when they come back and come back into session. Okay, well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, the G7 warns Russia that it faces massive consequences and severe costs if it launches a military attack on Ukraine. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, Katherine Gibson, VOA Congressional Correspondent, and Nancy Marshall-Genzer, senior reporter for Marketplace. Well, foreign ministers from the Group of Seven warned Russia that it faces massive consequences and severe costs if it launches a military attack on Ukraine. So what are the consequences if it does attack Ukraine, and what does Russia want at this point? Well, the consequences could include sanctions, and the State Department put out a statement saying that the national security advisor jake sullivan did a follow-up phone call with the russian presidential foreign policy advisor and told them that the u.s is concerned about the russian military buildup on the border with ukraine and quoting here emphasized the united states will continue to coordinate closely with our european allies and partners as we seek to address security and strategic matters through diplomacy so they're starting with diplomacy but threatening sanctions the diplomatic approach has been a subject of much discussion up on Capitol Hill. State Department officials were testifying before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee last week about this issue, really laying out the Biden administration's plan for this, saying that they wouldn't be caught as unawares as the Obama administration had been when there was that previous Russian incursion into the area. They said that they are prepping sanctions that will be ready to go the moment Russia makes a move. Of course, Republican senators are saying that this is not enough, that there needs to be action now prior to Russia moving in there. And a group of Republican senators just released some legislation late this week prepping lethal military aid to Ukraine, authorizing the administration to really quickly send money and armaments to Ukraine ahead of all of this, as well as designating Russia a state sponsor of terrorism if they indeed go into Ukraine. They're saying that the Biden administration has been very cautious and that they need to remove that caution and really be more forceful with Russia and with Putin. And if they should move forward with these sanctions, how would this affect Russia's standing on the world stage? The fact that the dollar is the world's currency, the U.S. has a lot of power here. It can say to various countries, look, you can't do any transactions in dollars. And it can say to other banks around the world, if you help Russia do transactions in dollars, then you will face sanctions also. So this is actually a pretty potent tool if the U.S. decides to use it. Yes, that's also another interesting angle. And relations between Russia and China reached a new level, says Russian President Vladimir Putin, as he told Chinese President Xi Jinping as the leaders met via video link this week. Is there Western concern over Russia and China's alliance? There has certainly been growing concern and a growing push on Capitol Hill to address 
the situation in China to address China's human rights record and to really hold them accountable ahead of the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. So that's really folding into this growing concern about Russia's incursion into Ukraine so that you're actually seeing some movement on Capitol Hill, some bipartisan agreement that there really is a need to act on both of these fronts to address the relationship with the two countries. Okay, good. Well, let's move on to get our last topic in. The WHO says the COVID-19 Omicron variant is spreading at a rate not seen with any previous variant, though it is not clear whether the strain causes more mild or severe disease than past variants of the virus. COVAX, a U.S. initiative backed by the WHO that was designed to pull money to ensure vaccine supply for poor nations, initially aimed to donate 2 billion doses by the end of 20. 2021. Well, now it's racing to deliver a far diminished target of 800 million doses. Where does President Biden's strategy stand on global vaccinations? As far as international vaccine distribution goes, there's been a lot of discussion up on Capitol Hill, a lot of concern that really the administration is not following through on some of those promises. And what we're hearing is that, frankly, there are a lot of distribution and supply issues where you're having to freeze these vaccines. It's very hard to keep them refrigerated properly, get them over to certain countries. And a lot of lawmakers are asking, you know, look, we've obligated a lot of money for this to help the world because ultimately a fully vaccinated world helps the United States. We all help each other out by that happening. And it's really just really not playing out the way lawmakers intended. And the other thing that's interesting is it's not clear if the Omicron variant will be as mild in the U.S. as it was in South Africa. One of the reasons for that is so many South Africans have had COVID and have built up antibodies, and maybe that's why they had a mild reaction to the Omicron variant. That's not the case in the U.S. Right, and you know, the Center for Disease Control has modeled out some of the possible scenarios for the way this variant spreads in the United States, and they basically came down to having two different scenarios where there was a huge surge in January that would likely be attributed to all of the holiday travel that we have coming up here in the U.S. You know, people are spreading throughout the country. They're flying and driving to different states. That will definitely help spread this variant. They also had another smaller model that showed a smaller surge in the spring. So that's one element of hope for public health authorities here, since they say that it's really not in the cards to develop a different vaccine to address this variant. They're saying that the best method is for everybody to get vaccinated, their two-step vaccines, and then to go and get their booster, which quite frankly has not really happened in the United States yet about 55 out of the 200 million vaccinated people here in the U.S. have gotten their booster. So there's still a long way to go on that front. Yes, and states such as California have reinstituted mask wearing, while other states, they say widely available vaccines have made statewide mask mandates unnecessary. So looking at this, I've just received various types of public reaction, even coming from healthcare workers, to the going back to mask wearing and social distancing and what some saying, you know, this enough is enough. The virus is going to be here and we must all have to learn to live with it like we do with the flu. 
Yeah, and the situation in New York State is especially interesting. New York's governor has said she's leaving it up to the counties to enforce the mask mandate. And in upstate New York, the northern part of the state, there are some counties that are pretty conservative. So it's not clear how stringently those counties in upstate will enforce the mask mandate. I think it is an interesting strategy on the part of the Biden administration to take this hands-off approach on mask wearing, which has, of course, been a real subject of debate here in the United States. By leaving it up to the states, they avoid that accusation that they're mandating this at the federal government level and kind of stepping out of that whole contentious discussion that's been happening here. And it also recognizes that reality that Nancy mentioned as well, that we're now moving into the second year of the pandemic and people are indeed fatigued by social distancing, by teleworking, by mask wearing. It's been a lot to deal with. And, you know, they're recognizing the reality that people are ultimately going to do what they feel is best on their own. Yes, and we are now out of time and we'll have to end on that note. My thanks go to Katherine Gibson, BOA Congressional Correspondent, and Nancy Marshall Genzer, Senior Reporter for Marketplace. Thank you both for your insight on these challenging issues. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. Yeah.